Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the part two anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan. And today's episode is The Metal, where we discuss some aspects of the management of perioperative anemia, as well as the newly published PREVENT trial. As always, in this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. So there are three pillars of patient blood management in general. The first is optimization of blood volume and red cell mass. The second is minimization of blood loss. And the third is optimization of the patient's tolerance of anemia. This is a big topic to cover. And so today we are just focusing on the assessment of preoperative anemia, the potential effects of preoperative anemia, preoperative iron, and the newly published PREVENT trial. Now, the PREVENT trial stands for preoperative intravenous iron to treat anemia before major abdominal surgery. Today, we will discuss this study in conjunction with the Australian Patient Blood Management Guidelines. Links to these documents can be found in our show notes. So let's start at the beginning. We know that preoperative anemia is common. Anemia is defined as a haemoglobin under 130 grams per litre for males and under 120 grams per litre for females. We also know that being anemic before major surgery is bad for you. The perioperative module of the patient blood management guidelines recommend that both for cardiac and non-cardiac surgery, preoperative anemia should be identified, evaluated and managed to minimise red blood cell transfusion, which may in itself be associated with an increased risk of morbidity, mortality, ICU length of stay and hospital length of stay. There are many pre, intra and post-op strategies to fully run out best practice for patient blood management, but today we're going to focus on the assessment and treatment of preoperative anemia. Now, the Australian Patient Blood Management Perioperative Guideline contains a nice flowchart on page 10 regarding investigation of pre-op anemia for patients undergoing procedures in which substantial blood loss is anticipated. This may include cardiac surgery, major orthopaedic, vascular or general surgery. Basically, they suggest firstly assessing the haemoglobin and then the ferritin. So I'm just going to jump in and note that ferritin can be elevated in inflammation, infection, liver disease, and malignancy. Mm. So you may actually still have iron deficiency present with ferritin values of 6 to 100 mics per litre in certain patient populations. Mm, that's true. That's very important to keep in mind. Now, if the haemoglobin is normal but the ferritin is under 100 micrograms per litre, they suggest considering iron therapy if the haemoglobin is predicted to drop by 30 grams or more for reasons that we will discuss further shortly. Now, if the ferritin is severely low, so less than 30 micrograms per litre, they suggest determining the cause and the need for gastrointestinal investigations. So if preoperative anemia is detected, then an assessment is made on the ferritin level, as Kate just discussed. A ferritin level of under 30 mics per litre suggests iron deficiency anemia. So the advice is to evaluate the possible causes discussed with a gastroenterologist uh, regarding investigations and timing prior to surgery and commence iron therapy. So that's for under 30 mics per litre. If the ferritin is between 30 and 100 mics per litre, you can evaluate this in concert with the CRP. A raised CRP actually suggests possible iron deficiency, but once again, the causes should be evaluated and iron therapy should be commenced. An intermediate ferritin of the 30 to 100 mic per litre range in concert with a normal CRP is considered down the same pathway as a ferritin of over 100 mics per litre, suggesting possible anemia of chronic disease or inflammation. And once again, the advice is to investigate possible causes. All kind of comes back to the same endpoint. Mm, mm. Iron therapy, however, is not recommended in the context of the ferritin over 100 mics per litre. So under 30 mics per litre, 
iron therapy between 30 and 100 iron therapy, but over 100, they don't recommend iron therapy. Yeah, that makes sense. That's understandable. Now, we want to emphasize that anemia is highly complex and maybe multifactorial. The advice of a hematologist never goes astray when trying to navigate a complex patient. When it comes to iron therapy, this may be administered orally in divided daily doses or intravenous iron if oral iron is contraindicated, not tolerated, or ineffective, or surgery is under two months away. There is an interesting calculation in the blood management guidelines where one microgram per litre of ferritin is equivalent to 8 to 10 milligrams of storage iron. So to reconstitute 10 grams per litre of hemoglobin in a 70 kilogram patient, like an adult, it will take around 165 milligrams of storage iron. So this means that a hemoglobin drop of over 30 grams per litre will deplete a patient of iron stores if their preoperative ferritin is less than 100 mics per litre. And that's really interesting. Yeah, so, I mean, you have to sort of sit down and think and calculate the maths, but, Mm. yeah, essentially that makes sense. So the recommendation Mm. to replace iron makes sense if the ferritin is under 100 micrograms per litre because if they bleed and drop their hemoglobin by 30 they're actually going to completely deplete their iron so it's not just about what they're currently at but what you're anticipating might happen in the future I guess. exactly and if they have no iron they're not going to be able to replenish their lost hemoglobin in you know in the setting of surgery so it's yep. just it's like a it's like a double hit double whammy mm-hmm So what are the choices for iron replacement? So you can have oral iron replacement, intramuscular and intravenous therapy. We can delete the option of intramuscular as as it is effective, but it is painful and may cause permanent skin staining, as well as being no safer than intravenous uh, injection. Its use is discouraged by the National Blood Authority. Mm, Fair enough. The recommended oral iron dose is 100 to 200 milligrams of elemental iron daily, um, and they suggest giving that in two to three divided doses. Now, there are more than 100 preparations containing iron available in Australia. However, interestingly, most of them don't contain enough elemental iron to treat iron deficiency anemia effectively. The Blood Authority also does not recommend multivitamin or mineral supplements as iron content is low, and in fact, they may actually reduce the absorption of iron. There you go. Okay. So in terms of the effectiveness of oral iron, hemoglobin levels are expected to rise by 20 grams per litre every three weeks. Oral iron should also be continued for three months after anemia has been corrected to replenish iron stores. The issue with oral iron is that it is variably tolerated, can cause gastrointestinal upset. Intermittent dosing it, dosing it with food or at night, or increasing the dose gradually are strategies which may all improve the tolerance of oral iron. Some of the preparations which contain enough elemental iron include ferro-liquid, FIFOL, ferro-F-tabs, and ferro-grad-C. But there is a good table on the suitable preparations and their active ingredients on page 14 of the Iron Product Choice and Dose Calculation for Adults document, which you can find in our show notes. Awesome. We should also add that we all know it's pretty rare to see patients months prior to their surgery. Now, many of us are familiar with seeing preoperative patients in our clinics the week or even the day prior to their scheduled surgery, which is one of the reasons that IV iron has become more popular of late. Now, when it comes to intravenous preparations, there are three that are available in Australia. There is Ferrin Inject, which is ferric carboxymaltose, Ferrosig, which is iron polymaltose, and Venifer, which is iron sucrose. There are many complex equations that you can use to calculate the total body iron deficit, which we won't go into here. There is, however, a simplified method which uses hemoglobin and body weight in a two-by-two table to calculate the cumulative iron dose required. All three IV preparations are different with regards to the amount of iron they contain and how they should be administered. So know what you're giving before you give it. 
Correct. So to sum up what we've learned so far, preoperative anemia is associated with poor outcomes. We now know how to assess it and the options for treating it. So yay, we've got it all sorted. But <laughs> yes, then came along the PREVENT trial. So PREVENT was published in The Lancet on the 4th of September 2020. It's a double-blind, placebo-controlled randomised trial to compare the clinical effectiveness of intravenous iron therapy given to patients with anemia 10 to 42 days before major open elective abdominal surgery. Their hypothesis was that intravenous iron would be superior to placebo with respect to patient outcomes of blood transfusion, death, adverse events and quality of life. With regards to methodology, participants were older than 18 years of age with a hemoglobin level indicating anemia and having major surgery, and they were recruited across 46 sites in the United Kingdom. Lengths were taken to ensure the placebo was concealed, so the participant's skin was swabbed with iodine, their study treatment was shielded from vision with light protection bags and infused through black tubing. Ferinject was used, which is ferric carboxymaltose, as a single 1,000 milligram dose, Overall, 237 patients were included in the intention-to-treat analysis in each arm of the study. So the groups were similar with regards to their demographics and comorbidities. Baseline hemoglobin concentrations were similar in the groups at randomization, but by the time of surgery, predictably, the intravenous iron group had a mean difference of 4.7 grams per litre greater. Anemia was corrected in 21% of the intravenous iron group compared with 10% of patients in the placebo group. Overall, there was no difference in the incidence of transfusion or death overall or as part of the subgroup analysis. And this subgroup analysis did include um, hemoglobin level and ferritin level. The only positive finding, as it were, was a reduced risk of readmission to hospital in the intravenous iron group. The discussion includes this statement, and I quote, This fact implies that treatments directed to the underlying causes of anemia might be required to improve outcomes in this high-risk population. So in other words, we know anemic patients are at higher risk, but simply correcting their haemoglobin is not sufficient to reduce their risk of complications and death. Now, you might have noticed that this study didn't specifically cherry-pick the patients with preoperative iron deficiency, which is a ferritin of less than 100 micrograms per mil. They note this in the discussion, but did do a subgroup analysis, which didn't yield a different result. Yeah, so I think um, it's interesting because, yes, correct, they didn't actually pick people with iron deficiency. Mm. Secondly, they didn't actually fully correct the iron deficiency in mm. the intravenous iron group. They only mm. did that in 21% of patients. So there are a few issues with this study. It's obviously a very limited patient population in terms of people having a very specific kind of surgery. Yeah. I think overall, we think this is a high quality study yeah. with some interesting and somewhat disappointing results. Mm. The authors do hypothesize in their discussion that perhaps preoperative erythropoietin could be considered in addition to iron and also discuss the potential benefit of postoperative iron, which may re yield a reduction in surgical complications and readmission. Uh, it's definitely worth a look. Interesting trial. Mm. Kate, do you think the PREVENT study will change your practice? Oh, so that's a hard one. Look, in honesty, with the number of patients that we see coming through clinic that are having surgery that week um, who are anemic, um, specifically with an iron deficiency anemia, I actually don't think this is going to change my practice. And there's a couple of reasons for that. So first and foremost, particularly with Ferinject, which is the ferric carboxymaltose, it's incredibly easy to give. It's really well tolerated. And you can, honestly, you can infuse that stuff in less than an hour. So it's not like 10 years ago where an iron infusion 
took six hours and it was poorly tolerated. So I think the fact that it's well tolerated, we're at least doing something to try and correct these this patient's anemia. And again, as Kate said previously, it's a really high risk patient group, often not just with anemia in isolation, but with many other significant medical issues that contribute to their perioperative risk. So in truth, I at this stage, I don't think it's going to have a big impact on the way that we manage, or, or I specifically manage pre-op anemia, but it's certainly something to keep in the back of my mind, particularly in watching as more evidence comes out, because I have no doubt that this will trigger additional trials looking at preoperative iron infusion in the setting of um, major surgery. What about you, Kate? What do you think? Oh, look, yeah, I have similar thoughts. I think the jury is probably still out. I'm mm. not sure this is a completely definitive trial, but mm. I think it's interesting. Um, mm. I mean, we would really suggest sticking with whatever your institution's local guidelines are as a start. Mm. But for me, similarly, intravenous iron is a low-cost, low-complication intervention with some potential post-operative benefit, and I'll probably keep referring my patients for preoperative iron infusions. So, look, Kate, we're at the end of today's discussion. Uh, what have you learned in anesthesia this week? <laughs> so this will probably make most of you chuckle a bit. I'm someone with um, very little regional um, anesthesia experience. And this week, I actually learned how to do a popliteal fossa sciatic nerve block. Um, I, honestly, I'd never even, I know, I'd never even seen one before. And the clinical situation, I know, I know, don't even get me started. Um, so the clinical situation that I had was that I had a patient who had systemic scleroderma, also known as Crest syndrome. And this patient had a difficult airway um, had a very high risk of aspiration with terribly controlled reflux, essentially uncontrolled reflux despite maximal proton pump inhibitor therapy. Um, and this patient also had significant involvement of the respiratory syndrome with regards to the scleroderma. So I got one of my other consultants who is very, very good with regional anesthesia, and I got them to walk me through how to do a popliteal fossa sciatic nerve block. And we also did a saphenous block as well. And it actually went really well. The patient was really well analgesed for the procedure. So that's what I learned. Kate, what have you learned this week in anesthesia? So this week, uh, I, for the first time, put in a MAC catheter or a multi-lumen access catheter. Uh, we had a trauma patient that required some blood and fluid. Uh, so basically, it's just a ginormous central line, vascati-looking thing that goes into the neck. Uh, so we put it in right IJ under ultrasound as per usual. Awesome. Uh, was a little hairy. They're really <laughs> big. Uh, they basically have a middle port that you can feed a central line through and then two side ports, which are huge. Um, and in this particular patient, their IJ was sitting right on top of their carotid under ultrasound and they were obviously hypovolemic. So I, I, like dilating that thing wasn't probably my favourite moment Ooh. in anaesthetics. Um, but it was good Ooh, to put one in. That would and, have been very um, stressful. Yeah, but, you know, it's a new skill. I mean, it's just applying knowledge that yeah. you already have of putting in central lines. It's just slightly bigger. Yeah, but I mean, let's face it, that's what we do every single day. We take knowledge that, you know, that we've established previously and we're always applying it to new situations. So that's really awesome. Well done. That's exactly right. So, um, yeah, that was interesting. New skill, something different. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion on today's episode of Deep Breaths. As always, you can contact us at deepbreathspod at gmail.com. We'd love it if you spread the word to follow us on your favorite podcast platform and even review us. And if you know someone that you think would be a great interviewee, please feel free to let us know. We've already had a few suggestions and these people will be appearing on the podcast sometime soon. Absolutely. So keep them coming. That's great, guys. 
Thanks for listening and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths.